So I wanted to start um, this evening kind of naming something that we're probably all feeling about this change that's happening in our retreat now. And I wonder if anybody is not aware that <laughs> we're getting to the, to the end of our retreat. We're nearing the end now. I mean, particularly for those of you who um, have been here for nearly two months. You know, I mean, you know, it's like it's kind of in the air now. Um, there are people, of course, who have been here for three and a half weeks. There are people here who this is the longest retreat they've ever done before. You know, and um, I'm, there's a couple people that I'm aware that that's true for. And so it was like in this, after 10 days, uh, two weeks, it's like, this is it, isn't it? This is it. It's like, this is, you haven't gone past this mark before, you know? And, and so it's kind of, you know, entering new territory. And so it starts to shift now because we need to be bringing in some of the integration uh, into um, the speaking and the social way of being together before we send you out on Sir Francis Drake. <laughs> and I always like to, you know, when I'm reminding uh, yogis, even, even on a shorter retreat, it's like, you know, for those who are driving, you know, as soon as you get out on Sir Francis Drake, they're going about 65 miles an hour, you know. And it, it happens pretty quickly. So, so we're going to take some time these next days, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and we're going to start to uh, bring in a few more of the integration practices. So I just wanted to give you a little heads up on that, particularly um, for those who have been here for two months. Um, tomorrow, we're going to, in the afternoon, offer a time for just the two monthers to gather together with a couple of the teachers and begin that integration process of the speaking. It's happening. <laughs> I, see, I see a couple expressions on people's faces, you know, like, oh, really? <laughs> but we thought it might be better to tell you tonight rather than <laughs> tomorrow morning. Um, just give you a little bit more time to get your psyche prepared for that. Um, yeah, so tomorrow, just for those who have been here for two months. So it'll be very contained and uh, really held. And the rest of everybody else will stay and uh, hold the noble silence tomorrow. And then the next day, on Thursday, we will uh, offer uh, an integration in the speaking and the listening for those who are here for one month. So we'll start that in the afternoon on Thursday. And of course, then on Friday, it'll be very interesting <laughs> as people start to integrate a little bit more and we integrate as a whole, uh, a whole Sangha together on Friday. So we're going to kind of do it like that. And of course, Saturday morning is when we will be departing. Although one yogi, t one person told me today that I, was, I should tell the managers that she's not leaving. <laughs> so, um, you know, that might be the case too. 
getting pretty comfortable here. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so just, you know, maybe just take a moment right now and just see what's happening in your experience as you hear that. Wow. Is there, you know, particularly for those two monthers, is was there just a little escalation in the heartbeat? <laughs> Maybe in the breathing, you know, it happens. Change. Change happens. Right? And people are in different places. You know, everybody here is in a different place in their retreat, you know. Heather gave that wonderful talk earlier on cycles of practice. And we, are, we go through cycles in our practice and on the retreat. So here we are. We're going to be going through some cycles, cycling again, you know, as we go through these next days. And some people are, you know, today and tomorrow very, you know, really deep in their concentration and exploration you know, still really, the, you know, this uh, opportunity for them and the conditions have come together in such a way that's really supportive of that. For other people, other conditions have come together, you know, and different kinds of ways of being here is called upon, you know. So some people are more open, you know, more connecting, that's fine, you know. And so, so we, all, we all find our own way as we start to come out of our vipassana shamatha practices in a formal way, right? We're just coming out of it in a more formal way where we bring in a little bit more of the social contact, but the vipassana shamatha actually comes along with us. And of course, we're going to be talking a lot more about that as we um, come more into our integration practices. I'm going to be talking quite a lot about um, really how to bring this practice more fully into our, um, uh, I like to say it this way, how to bring our daily life more fully into the practice, right? So really be, be focusing on that a lot. So remembering there isn't any right or wrong way to do this or any right or wrong way to be experiencing this. No. Um, I wanted to share with you uh, oh, my early days of uh, breaking silence in the, when I was doing my three-month retreats, early three-month retreats at uh, the Insight Meditation Society. I did most of my long retreats over there on the East Coast. And I remember this one time, I th- maybe my, I think it was my second three-month retreat actually, and when we were going to break silence, I was just terrified. I was terrified. I just didn't want to do that. Like somebody said, I'm not going home, right? You know, but I I remember it was about four days before, five days before, and I was kind of wandering wandering in the halls, crying, looking for a teacher to, you know, try to get some uh, consolation because I just didn't think I could do it. I just didn't think I could do it. And when I reflect on that, I see that really, because ha- you know there, there were s- shades of that w- that would happen again and again, but what I really became aware of was that I really didn't want to confront my personality again. This personality that got kind of quieted down through the silence and through the um, 
the, the holding of the practice, the formal practices and the concentration really, and how it, how it kind of suppresses the personality to a certain extent. And then when we come back into our social uh, engagement again, and we meet people and talk to people, it's like that personality that we still are, <laughs> right, hasn't gone anywhere, comes right back. And with it comes a lot of the difficult patterns, the speech and the actions and the ways of interacting, the ways of being. And I just didn't want to have to experience that again because there's that the bliss, really the bliss of the silence and, and the, the loveliness of being together in the sangha where we don't have to enter into um, our patterning that often can give rise to, to disturbance. You know, it gives rise to lots of joy and lots of beauty and lots of heartful connection, which is so, so sweet, particularly also after we've been deep in practice the way we have been. But also some of the disturbing parts come up too. And I could see how I just didn't want to connect with myself in that way. In fact, I really had the sense that I was somebody that I didn't really like being with. You know? I was somebody I didn't really like being with. And, you know, that isn't necessarily something that's completely gone away in true transparency. You know, I mean, we all have that, those parts of ourselves that it's like, oh, no, not again. You know, I can't believe I said that again. I can't believe I did that again. You know, and it's just this, you know, I think so much of our practice is coming into a deep kind of acceptance and, and self-compassion with the way we are, right? You know, with our personalities, with, with the way we are in, in our social relationships. You know, and it's not necessarily easy for us. In fact, I call a relational practice the advanced practice. And and in our our early days of, of practice, of retreat practice, there was really very, very little mention of anything about relationship or how to be in relationship, or how, you know, it was really more of an individual, really looking at our own mind, and, you know, looking at the, the, the greed, the hatred, the delusion that was rising in the mind, but not so much about real, real time in, in relationship with others. In fact, in those early years, maybe, you know, the late 70s, early 80s, there was a very kind of, much more of a, of a division between retreat practice, formal retreat practice, and worldly life. It wasn't as, there wasn't as much sophistication in those days about really how to do that well. So in fact, um, I think it was my first three-month course um, that, you know, with a hundred yogis, you know, at the Insight Meditation Society, um, the, the, the idea that the teachers had, Joseph, Jack, Sharon, Salzburg, you know, the, teach, the ideas they had was the way, the way to integrate, to get people back to speed was let's throw big parties. <laughs> I think you were there. I think Arena was there too. You know, so I remember this one. <laughs> I remember the, that we were going to have a costume party. <laughs> And so we were just supposed to find things that, you know, to make 
you know, get dressed up. And, I, <laughs> and then we were going to, like, you know, have a party, but without the cocktails, you know, but we'd have punch and cookies and, you know, and, and I'll never forget that Joseph... <laughs> And you know, if you know Joseph Goldstein, you've been with he's very tall, you know, he's oh, he's six foot something. He decided that he was going to wear a king's crown. <laughs> and so Joseph was the king. <laughs> How perfect. <laughs> that was one night. And then the, n- <laughs> the next night was movie night. <laughs> And so they put up a big screen in the meditation hall, you know, where, you know, <laughs> showed some kind of movie, you know. <laughs> and then the other night, the next night was having skits. <laughs> Performances. <laughs> and, you know, so we would all get together and decide what kind of skit or music, you know, we were, I mean, it was like, you know, having a, a, a performance for that evening. I'm not sure (laughs) there was ever really any discussion about bringing this into our mindfulness. (laughs) And I think, you know, I think it really was when Joseph and Jack and Sharon started getting some calls, you know, like... two or three weeks after the retreat where they started getting worried about some yogis who were wandering around downtown Boston in their pajamas, you know, and sort of like, (laughs) needing needing a little bit more support (laughs) for really how to to bring these together, right? (laughs) So, you know, this is a long time ago. <laughs> In fact, you know, I mean, the, the, we only started bringing retreats over here, you know, in this form in 1975. So this was about four or five years after that. And so there wasn't, there was still, we, we had a lot of learning to do back then. I mean, not we, because I was just a yogi, but, you know. Um, wow. You know. <laughs> So we've, we've learned, and I, I, I think that um, we've learned well. And, and we, we understand what's really needed now, and I think we can really hold you. And because, you know, and we really care about, you know, these cycles and these, uh, the swings and all that actually that goes on when we start coming into social contact with each other again. So, so that's, it's all, it's okay, you know, it's okay, because we're, we, we bring it back to our mindfulness and to our, um, our heart, our heart practices, you know, and it's, and it's why we integrate the heart practices to ourselves and to others, metta, compassion, joy, equanimity, you know, just to say, even in the early days, we didn't have a lot of metta practice either. You know, it was all mostly insight. 
know, some in, some metta, you know, was coming in, but it, you know, the primary thing was insight, the wisdom practice. So, so to really start integrating the Brahmaviharas and the heart practices, which we bring in the uh, the phrases and the directing the attention to the heart and uh, working with the the emotional heart, such an important part of the integration, right? And so I know that that will really support us and really hold us and really help us because we've practiced that really well over this time. So, so we, we keep turning it back and we turn it back into our practice. You know, we, have, we have so many practices that we can, we can uh, uh, depend on, we can, that will support us. You know, for me, uh, I think that you know, in my early days, um, my practice was so motivated by aversion, you know, about wanting to get out. You know, certainly those early years of you know, not wanting to return back to my personality, you know, it was partly that I, I wanted these teachings to uh, give me a, a way out of having to feel my, my personhood. You know, to feel myself as a person who had a mind and body walking on this earth. I didn't want the suffering that one, that, that as a human being we experience. There is suffering in this life. It's like, that's the first noble truth. I didn't want that. I just wanted the, the third noble truth, right? <laughs> there is a way out, <laughs> There is freedom from this suffering, you know. I didn't want to have to go through the first two steps. So, so I was always looking with aversion, kind of looking for a fast track out. And, and the teachings, particularly in the, the, the Theravadan teachings in the way that I was hearing it, was like, yeah, you know, like you can just find a way out of this mind and this body experience and be free, you know. So I could, I, it, when, re, when I reflect on it, I can really see now how much of it was motivated by aversion, you know, and not wanting to be here, not wanting to be here. So in the beginning, I, I had a very, I was very idealistic. I had lots of ideals about who I would be, you know, if I had to, st- if because I would still be in, uh, in a mind and body and in a form, but when I really understood I would be a manifestation of a divine being. You know, I would be, I wanted to be Kuan Yin. I even, I gave a talk called, I, I want to be Kuan Yin. <laughs> you know, it was like, <laughs> and then in my mind, you know, I would just keep reaching for those ideals of being this, you know, divine being, this divine goddess, you know, it was just that that's who I was going to be. And so there was always this kind of leaving myself again, you know, it was this kind of leaving myself into my images and my ideals and my expectations, you know, about what I really thought was possible for me on this path. But at the same time, avoiding, you know, just wanting to avoid not wanting to feel, not wanting to really uh, be fully in my experience. 
But I could see that, you know, I could see that at the same time, um, these teachings were uh, pointing me back, you know, they were pointing me back. And as much as I wanted to leave, as much as I wanted to run away, as much as I wanted to not be with myself, there was an interesting paradox because the, the, the mindfulness kept bringing me back to myself, right? And, and so then I'd want to go away, but it, like, if I was really understanding and hearing the teachings, I, I had to come back, you know? And when I came back to what was, what was happening in my true experience, whether it was, you know, the, the 10,000 joys or the 10,000 sorrows, each time I came back, that's what was here, is uh, a pleasant and unpleasant, and the whole range in between. So it was this interesting kind of uh, paradox of both wanting to be free of this uh, mass of suffering, but also continually having to come back. So I remember this kind of like a little bit of a feeling of being trapped, right? Because if I really did the practice, I had to stay here. I had to keep coming back to myself. So it took me a little while, you know, to really start to recognize that as I did that and as I practiced the teachings and as I listened to the teachings, I was actually able to hold myself with a bit more kindness and a bit more care and a bit more compassion. So even though I was being asked to come back to an an experience that was hard, I was learning how to put my hand on my heart and to send loving kindness to myself and to wish myself well and to wish that I will be happy and peaceful and at ease and free of this pain. And so for a long, long time, that was my practice of just sending that loving kindness back to myself so that I could stay here because it was so hard to stay here with my experience. I remember the very first time before I started Dharma practice when I wanted to get away and I, re- I had the opportunity because of my, my privilege um, uh, in, my, in my early 20s to go to Europe and do um, some traveling over there. And I remember thinking that um, once I get over to Europe, then everything's going to be fine. Just change everything. I have to get out of here. Get out of Cleveland, Ohio, which is where I was raised, you know. Just get out and then get to some place that's really exotic. Then I'll, then I'll be great, right? And I remember sitting on the hill in Italy, actually. It's, you know, one of these, you know, when the first insights start to come. And I was sitting on the hill and I was really kind of, you know, so looking forward to not being me, you know, <laughs> to being somebody else, <laughs> And I was sitting on the hill, and there I was. I was. I, I couldn't get away. You know, I was. I was there. The me that wanted to get away was still there. And I remember. You know, I guess my mind was starting to open, and my heart was starting to open. Then, you know, that I. I was starting to realize that I was on a um, a path that was not going to be very fruitful <laughs> of this kind of running away, running away. And so again, you know, okay, here I am. 
And then I, I told you the story already of my very first retreat where I, you know, I wanted, I was having a nervous breakdown. You know, this is a lot of dukkha. You know, I told somebody that, you know, my doorway was dukkha and they said, I, I haven't gone through the dukkha doorway. You know, it's like, <laughs> that's not my doorway. It's like, oh, wow, really? <laughs> Doesn't everybody go through that? <laughs> but apparently not, you know. So, so going, you know, by my first retreat, you know, kind of um, wanting to get out, had to get out again, you know, and then running to the bathroom, you know, shutting the door, you know, like I did when I was a kid, just trying to, you know, shut the door and then everything would stay out there, but then finding myself, everything was still there, <laughs> you know, so, so it's that, you know, it takes time takes time, but yet these practices have been so incredibly valuable in this is kind of coming back with the loving kindness, coming back with the compassion, coming back with the, the practice of equanimity that this is how my heart is right now, which equanimity is, this, is, is, is a radical acceptance and, 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 and somebody reminded me in one of the interviews, it's a, also a patient acceptance. And I love that when we were sitting together and, and talking about this quality of acceptance that, that this word patience came in. Because I think that what happens is there's this sense of, but I want it now. You know, yeah, I can see that's how the quality of my heart is right now. But I want it to change right, you know, as soon as I walk out the door, I want it to be different, you know. So this patience. And I loved how she and I sat together and we just felt into the word patience together, you know. Ah, patience. And it's such a, such a potent word. You know, I mean, it, for me, as I feel into it right now, that word just kind of everything starts to settle in me and I get a little more quiet and I get more connected. I get more connected to myself. I feel more present. I feel more grounded and I can let go. So I can let go a little bit more easily of my judgments and my expectations and my desires and my longings and my ideals and my wishes for myself, which is the conditioning, the conditioned mind. So what I learned, how I was trained to, you know, look, look out there for that ideal, you know, growing up as a teenager, all I really had were you know, the magazine, Seventeen magazine, you know, in the, in the 50s, you know, and those were my, my images, those were my ideals as a white woman, it was all white, you know, and how I was supposed to look, how I was supposed to be, and, and so there's this whole kind of habit, like a, a habit of mind to look out to the other, That's how it's supposed to be. That's how I'm supposed to be. That's how I'm supposed to look. That's how I'm supposed to do it. Whether, I think for for men and for women, I don't know about non-gendered people. I'd love to know more about that. But it's a sense of, you know, 
somehow it's not, a, not okay here or not enough here. It's reminding me of this um, <clears throat> quote, uh, this, this, uh, there's a teacher named Sayadaw Utejaniya who I really love, I've mentioned. Um, <clears throat> Sayadaw Utejaniya is a Burmese um, teacher who's teaching now and, and comes to, comes to this here in different places. I think he's coming here next year actually. <clears throat> and he has a wonderful, wonderful way of uh, helping us turn the mind more to the wisdom factor. So it's not so much about me or what I'm doing. He just keeps turning us back, turning us back to allow the wisdom to move through the body and mind. And I came across this um, just the other day where a yogi asked him, when I am on my own, I feel there is a, I feel there is a very easy and relaxed kind of awareness. But when I'm in a social situation, being mindful becomes kind of artificial, right? Like we have to try a little bit harder. So Sayadaw says, you need to remind yourself to be aware in that easy and relaxed kind of way when you are with people. You also need to be aware of where your attention is. When you are on your own, your attention will tend to be all in here. When you are with others, it will most likely be all out there. Why does it go out there? It is because you are more interested in what's going on out there, because you are really not interested in what's going on in here. (laughs) When the attention is all outside, thoughts and emotions will come unnoticed and things will build up. I just love that. Where is our attention? When we're actually engaging and we're, we're, we're being more in, in, in social, where is our attention? And I think, again, it's this kind of, there's a, uh, and I've talked to some, some, some people about this, you know, how, how the attention seems to go out there. What are they doing? How are they acting? How are they dressing? And sometimes it's going out there um, because we, we lose ourselves and want to know how we should be, but sometimes it goes out there because we think they're doing it wrong, <laughs> right? So either we like the way they're doing it or we don't like the way they're doing it. And it becomes judgmental and critical and um, um, not very kind. And I love when he says, when the attention is all outside, thoughts and emotions will come unnoticed and then things will build up. So how important it will be for us as we start to come out a little bit more of our uh, concentration and how we've been able to keep our attention in here. And as we start to extend out and open out with the, se- the sense doors, can we still keep our, some of our attention here? It's not that we keep all our attention here. In fact, you know, sometimes we talk about it, it's like maybe, 
we could say keep 50% of your attention here and 50% of your attention there. If you can do that kind of <laughs> spatial relationship in, in this regard, you know? Or sometimes, you know, I've heard 60% here. I've even heard 80% here. Maybe we need to keep 80% here and 20% there. I think it's just interesting to start to feel into that and sense into that. But the most important thing is that attention is home, that we're home. Because I think that's what happens, is we leave home. And then where are we? Right? If we leave home, we're not going to be able to really attend very well to what's happening with our speech and our actions and the impact that it has on the ones that we're engaging with. And how important is it going to be for us to be so aware of the impact? Our, the, the sensitivity to how our speech and our actions affect each other. It's one thing when we're in the silence together and we're slowing down and we can be, we're kind of in this, sometimes can feel like a cosmic dance. I mean, that's how it always feels to me on retreat. It's so beautiful, this kind of way we just sort of move together and there's a certain sensitivity that can happen, doesn't always happen, but a a sensitivity to each other. And yet when we start to talk and we start to engage and our bodies are moving more quickly, this is where I think it's probably one of the most valuable aspects of the mindfulness practice is to get us to slow down. And not only, you know, slowing down these next five days, but using that, keeping that as a value in our lives where we perhaps remind ourselves to at times, particularly when things speed up a bit, just to, can we take a moment, take that breath, pause, and reconnect. It's so easy to lose ourselves. It's so easy to go out, you know, for the attention to go out, whether it's to another person or whether it's to the things, the things that we're engaging in. And perhaps we may even have seen that in our yogi jobs. You know, as we speed up a little bit, maybe dishwashing is always an interesting one or you know uh, mopping the floors you know the ones that are more a little bit more highly active here you know where you know particularly if we um, are, are quite uh, goal oriented we are outcome oriented you know well I have a task and I've got to get that task done right you know and it's all about completion and you know production and getting things accomplished which again is a conditioned a conditioned way that we many of us have learned you know but what if we shift that value right shift the value where maybe what's more important is our attention where our attention is and more and more bringing that attention into the heart, into the heart, so that our attention isn't just mind, it's not just in the head, kind of how it's what we're looking at or being with, 
but we've been practicing this embodied, embodied attention. So that more and more we know where our bodies are, (laughs) not just where our minds are. We've got to know where our bodies are and what our bodies are doing right? and how they're, how they're re- reacting and responding in our, in our, in our words, our, our, our speech. And I think, you know, without our mindfulness, without this, you know, the, some strength in our awareness, we're not going to know, as Saida Utejaniya says, those will go unnoticed And when they go unnoticed, we know what happens. There's so much potential for harm. Unconscious. Unconscious, perhaps, you know, but it's still harm. It's harmful. Harmful to ourselves, thoughts, feelings, reactions, criticisms, expectations. Harmful to ourselves. And then if that comes through our speech, then harmful to others. So one of our practices, I really think one of our practices is really a renewed commitment. Weren't we supposed to do the, the precepts once a week? Did we forget? <laughs> now that I sort of mention it. <laughs> Oren said, why is everybody looking at me? <laughs> Right, he's he's our, our he was our anagarika, our, our our monastic, right? <laughs> right, yeah. So we we'll do it. We go to we'll do it tomorrow. I think tomorrow, right? <laughs> you just do it so well, Oren. <laughs> so renewing, renewing the precepts be a great time to do it, yeah, renewing the precepts. Because I think, and renewing the, ref, the refuges, because I do think this is central to our practice, and particularly to our practice in our daily lives. Uh, it's a commitment and a renewing of the commitment, again and again and again, to these, this, this way, this way of being, where the central principle is do no harm. Do no harm. There's a few people I've been working with who that came through so clear in their practice. If they wanted, it's like, that's the kernel I'm taking home with me. Do no harm. Right? And that's what happens on these kinds of retreats, these kinds of, when we're, when we're together in this way, we see our own mind, we see our own heart, and we can feel, we're more sensitive, more sensitive to the impact, the impact that that has to ourselves, to others, to the group, to the wider community, to the world, right? This is not isolated. We're all swimming in this ocean of conditions and conditioning, right? These habits, these habits of mind, which are called sankharas. Sankharas is habits, right? which we are examining and looking at while we're here. This, um, I'm not even really using my notes anymore, so I don't know what, <laughs> I don't know where anything is. But um, 
this habits um, sankharas. I I found a, a, a very interesting quote from uh, Saida Upandita, um, another uh, Burmese master that we have trained. Many of us have trained with, and I I came across this um, teaching he was giving about this um, habits, and he said that um, the Buddha is the only noble individual who is free from habit. The Buddha is the only noble individual who is free from habit. Though those who have, are in the, the very high stages of awakening but not a Buddha still are caught up in habit. Habits of mind. And, and, the, and the Buddha is, is not only free from habit, habitual, habitual tendency, that, that automatic conditioning of mind, but is also completely free of kalesa, of greed, hatred, and delusion. So, so that's what makes a Buddha. There's no more greed in the mind, no more hate in the mind, no more confusion in the mind, and no more habit in the stream, mind stream completely liberated, completely free. And everyone else who's not a Buddha is still caught in the habit. I mean, that, I, I, he, he, say, he said, hence the name sublime, sugata for the Buddha, purified, blameless. Right? But we can, it doesn't, it doesn't mean that, you know, it's hopeless. <laughs> it can kind of feel like that. It's like, oh my gosh, you know. But yet, I think it puts things in perspective for us. You know, that, that we have work to do. All the way to the very high stages of our practice. That we can't stop. You know, it's not we can't rest on our laurels. You know, we can't rest on our meditative experiences and attainments that we've had. You know, I remember when I, you know, it was all about attainments. Right? And they were like trophies that I could put on my shelf. Say, well, I had that experience, you know, and had that experience. There's a point, I think, at which this is no longer about attainments and experiences. It's about how we're living and being and being with each other and the expression of our wisdom and our love and our compassion. How is that manifesting? It's, uh, Saidao Upandita says um, um, that that the, the the Buddha maybe you know say he's free from from habit and from kalesa. However, he still has a personality. And just to kind of tie it back to what I was saying before about the personality, you know, trying to get rid of the personality or erase the personality or become some kind of divine being. And Saidao uses this analogy. He says. It is like a bottle which used, to con- which used to contain alcohol. And though it's been washed clean, the odor in it still persists. Right? So even though the bottle has been washed clean, there's still like the, the, the we could call it the odor or the flavor or the perfume of the human being. You know, that doesn't go away. And we can see that with all of our, all of our, with ourselves and with teachers and masters. They all have personalities. You know, I mean, look at the 
look at the Dalai Lama, of course, you know, he's such a great example because he's a very, you know, very, very free being, although he says he's not. He says he still has to practice five hours a day because his mind is so, you know, filled with kalesa, with, uh, you know, but that makes me feel a little hopeless. Um, <laughs> you know, It does make you wonder. I know we've, I've had conversations, we've had conversations like that with some of you. It's like, really? What are we doing this for? But, <laughs> but, but at the same time, you know, um, you, you, we see that the, the personalities can just be so, so wonderful, so beautiful. And, and we can just celebrate, we can just enjoy the personalities and, and, and who we are and how we are, you know. And, 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 and more and more as we practice and, you know, come into the heart, the, atten- the, the attention in the heart, and, and really, really pay attention to the ways that we may still be caught in habits that are... Uh, causing disturbance or causing harm in some way and keep bringing that back, bring it back, bring it back into our awareness, into our compassion, into our wisdom, into our, our, uh, the ground of our own understanding. You know, it's okay. It's okay. We're okay. You know? And, I, and, 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 and if, unless we hold ourselves in that way, we'll keep coming back at ourselves and making ourselves wrong or judging ourselves or criticizing ourselves or, and then we're kind of reinforcing those same habits again that are creating disturbance, that are creating pain. So that's the way out. You know, I understand that now. That The, the, the way out is through the heart. The way out is, is about how I'm holding what rises in my experience. It's the way I'm holding what's arising in another person's experience, what's arising in a, in a community, what's arising in the world. How am I holding that? Can I, can I bring that back into the heart? It's kind of, I'm getting this sense right now of this kind of recycling back. Something arises, something comes into manifestation, uh, something that's pleasant or unpleasant, skillful, unskillful, and the way I can kind of bring it back back into my heart and hold it, hold that with love, with love and tenderness and appreciation and affection. Hold myself, hold myself. Bring it all back into love. Come back into love as much as I can. Is this one of my favorite quotes. I got, heard it way, way, way in the beginning of my practice. And I think it was James Barris who read it for the first time. And he is from Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche. He says, he's talking about the lion's roar, this kind of lion's roar in the practice. And he says, the lion's roar is the fearless proclamation that any state of mind including the emotions, is a workable situation. A reminder in the practice of meditation. 
we realize that chaotic situations must not be rejected, nor must we regard them as regressive or as a return to confusion. We must respect whatever happens to our state of mind. Chaos should be regarded as extremely good news. <laughs> Chaos should be regarded as extremely good news. Right? It's okay. It's okay, you know, if we know how to bring it back into the heart and hold it, hold it with kindness, with care, hold ourselves with kindness, with care, hold others with kindness. And you know, the Dalai Lama said, you know, somebody asked him what his religion was. He says, my religion is kindness. I think it eventually all comes back to that. Right, so we're going to have a lots of opportunity over these next four days, right? To really start to practice. Right? Practice. Practice kindness with ourselves, with others, with the community. And it doesn't mean that it, you know, it may not be chaotic at times. It's not that... It's not that it looks a particular way, which is a huge thing I had to learn, you know, get out of my own ideals, ideas and ideals and images about what I thought it was all going to look like and be like once I got enlightened, you know, which I remember I said, I'm so past that now, I'm so past enlightenment. But, (laughs) But, you know, it's really whatever, just kind of really whatever, is here. We have no control in the moment about what's going to arise, what's going to show up. But can we be ready? Can we be ready with our mindfulness on guard? Right? Our mindfulness on guard. So that we can more and more meet with, with awareness what's happening. So it doesn't go unnoticed. Because if it goes unnoticed, it can build up, right? So if we want to keep clearing, kind of keep things clear, clear the decks, it'll help us meet, help us be more present and meet what's here because the mind will be more free. The mindfulness will be more available. The heart will be more receptive, right? So that's how, it's kind of how I see things at the moment. Right. So I might leave it there. Right. So let's just sit quietly for a minute. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.